We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna yeah. the hit backfield, second and nine from inside the ten is Allen. Looks, takes off. He can run with it. Allen reaches for the pylon. And I think he has it. Wait for a signal. Still no signal. Well, it has to be a touchdown. I mean, uh, he, he, finally, finally we get one of the linesmen says touchdown. Now with three wides. Allen. Now he's going down the field. He's got a man wide open. And it's a touchdown for the Bills. Anthony Barr coming up the middle. Free safety. Got to get it go. Allen steps up. Jumps over the defenders to pick up the first. But a little history on this play at this end. Let's see if the Bills can do something. Over the top. That goes Allen. Touch he break the plane? He did. Touchdown, Buffalo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpile Report podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer. And that was Tony Romo and Jim Nance from CBS Sports. I got a name. Do you? Chris Kruger, your producer. You're welcome. Everything I do for you. Everything you do for me, including Feed Me Comedy Gold. Folks, I'm in Chris's bathroom taking a leak not even 20 minutes ago. And as I'm peeing, I look on the counter and I see this green stuff in a bottle. So, of course, I pick it up and I look at it. Like, what is this? What is this fruity nonsense? It's a it's it's a sea salt spray that's been infused with kelp to promote hair volume. What? Yep. <laughs> you don't even you barely have hair because you probably go afro if you grow your hair out. I have. I certainly do. I sir. have unbelievable hair. You are thanks an idiot. to that. It's nineteen dollars is what that cost me. You paid nineteen dollars for that. You are an idiot with terrible hair. I have wonderful worse fashion hair. Sense. Ask the women. Create a and, and create the, a poll for the ladies and on the Twitter. Fact that you paid nineteen dollars for hair serum, sir. I don't even know what to do with you. And you know what else? Nobody knows what to do with the Buffalo Bills. Sunday, I I felt I felt like Maximus Aurelius from oh, Maximus Aurelius and Gladiator. 
just walking around my friend's backyard with my arms open, having just shotgunned a beer, just, are you not entertained? Is this not why you all are here? I don't oh. even, I don't even remember what happened between, uh, four and seven thirty, roughly. I have no, okay. I'm just glad I got home safe. Folks, Chris and I watched Sunday's game outside in our friend's backyard. I mean, we had ribs, all kinds of dip. The sun was out. I mean, everything was great. It was easily the best day of the NFL season for Bills fans. And Chris may have, you know, Chris had to drink his Seagrams because last week I said that the Bills were going to score 20 points on this podcast. And everyone told me I was crazy. That would be just me. Saturday morning. I, I said, I'm sticking to my word. 20 points or more is what the Bills are going to score. And you, Chris, told me I was I was high. Yeah. I thought we were going to cover, but I didn't think we would get to 20. You almost had to drink a Seagram's before the end of the first half. Excuse me, the end of the first quarter. Yeah, it was, we were up 17 to nothing. Was, so Chris drank himself into Nobody a, saw that coming. Chris chugged the Seagram's at halftime, proceeded to drink himself into oblivion just off of pure Bill's euphoria. Yeah, I, whatever it is, I always do that when we go over to Mike's. I just get hammered over there. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Something about that place. Well, this, you know what? How about the last time I was over there, Memorial Day, and it says here, oh, yeah, friends in backyard with ribs. Yeah, I didn't eat the ribs, and I didn't throw up. How about that? <laughs> it's a win for me. I didn't puke at all. Although I don't remember what happened after the game. but So maybe you did. Maybe no, I know did. I did not puke. So, folks, fast forward to Sunday night. I mean, we were reveling in just what an awesome afternoon this was. And there I am, having just this past Saturday moved into my new home. I'm at least a dozen beers deep trying to put together a table in the downstairs living room of my house. Oh, tools. Tools and beers. I mean, after a while, I mean, usually, you know, you have a beer or two when you're working on any kind of a project. But after a while, it just starts to become a, like a self-defeating sort of a measure. And that's exactly, I mean, the exercise was just one of futility. <laughs> I decided, I, you know, as I'm doing this, I'm like, you know what I should do? I should hook up one of these TVs down here. You know, there's going to be two wall-mounted flat screens, full, you know, a living room setup, a, you know, kind of a kitchenette sort of uh, bar area down there. It's going to be great. I was like, I should set up one of the TVs and watch this Sunday night football game. I didn't think that anything could make my Sunday better. <laughs> oh, Chris, considering all of the booze flowing through my veins, I figured, you know, there's, it's not going to bother me to watch the Patriots absolutely destroy the Lions on Sunday night football. That game was, I mean, I only got to watch the first quarter, but, you know, if you put uh, with our game and the the Patriots game, I saw from Odd Shark. You put a $5 parlay on, there were six underdogs that just won outright. You put a $5 parlay on that, it netted you over ten grand. Jesus. Chris, between the Bills, the Patriots, I, I mean, Sunday was a perfect day. Patriots lost, the Bills won, a table inevitably sometime around midnight got put together. I mean, where else would you rather be than right here, right now, than Buffalo, New York? And with that, Hit me with the Bills news update. Some congratulations are in order, Chris. A big shout out to Matt Milano, named AFC Defensive Player of the Week. Earlier this week, the NFL announced that our own Matt Milano, Q 
kid, kid gets recognized as having the best defensive effort of any player in the AFC. I mean, a sack, a fumble recovery, an interception, and eight tackles. Sounds like a pretty solid day. Sounds like a stat line you'd get from uh, Khalil Mack. <laughs> He's the first Bills player since Nickel Roby Coleman in 2016. A lot of our longtime followers will remember that that was the game where I a video of me went viral screaming about how the Rams were passing all over us just to have Roby just pick it off and run it back for a touchdown. You should have told me about that. I would have played the clip. Ugh. And he's the first Bill since Troy Vincent in 2004 to have a sack, an interception, and a fumble recovery in the same game. I mean, Chris, 2004. Think about how much has gone on since... I was in my first year of college. I was in my first year of college. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I, 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 had, I think I had just gotten day drunk for the first time in 2004. Like, that was the first time I'd ever been drunk while the sun was out during that Bills 31 nothing game against the Patriots. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was my first experience day drinking. I didn't discover Jesus. day drinking un- until I got divorced. <laughs> I I overdo it on that. I was going to say you're like a kid in a candy store with this, Chris. You, in, in fact, I, I'm worried about you, sir. You may have a problem. What? I'm sorry. I'm. I mean, I had a little bit to drink uh, Monday night, and uh, Monday I was like, hey, you know what? I'm not going to drink. I went hard yesterday, and I came home from work, and I was thirsty. So. <laughs> And then in another piece of news, the Bills have traded Marshall Newhouse. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise that we're still trading guys and making moves. Brandon Bean is like a guy who just, I don't know, he has itchy palms. He almost strikes me like one of those guys, Chris, who's a degenerate gambler, who just has to find some action somewhere. He has to constantly be be scheming to make a trade. I bet you Brandon Bean paces, the just paces, around one Bills drive, looking for... What kind of? It's been it's been two weeks since my last trade, Chris. It's been two weeks. It's been three weeks. I got so he's kind of, he's kind of like Ashy Larry from Chappelle's kind show. Kind of. He's Ashy Larry of GMs in terms of making trades. He can't help it. Did Newhouse even like get reps with us in games? Oh, he did. He played. He played. I never heard his name. He played. Oh, well, you did after the false start that he had on Sunday. I mean, uh, oh. what? That's the thing. I wasn't shocked with the fact that he's not here anymore. I'm just surprised that we were able to get anything for him. I mean, don't get me wrong. The guy is a phenomenal Twitter follow. But he just can't do anything. He couldn't do anything for us on the offensive line. Just think about this for a second. We, the Buffalo Bills, having the the offensive line that we have, said, man, this player just isn't helping us as much as we think a future possible seventh-round draft pick might. You have to be bad in order for that to happen. Now, for the Panthers, the team that traded for them, it does make sense. I mean, right now they're missing both their left tackle and right tackle. They need, they're just looking for bodies at this point. And Marshall Newhouse represents, I mean, right now, Chris, if you were to hit the free agent market, all you're going to find are scabs and you know undrafted free agents. Guys out there who just really don't have a whole lot of upside. So for them, it's a win to spend a, what is probably going to turn out to be a seventh-round draft pick for the rights to a guy who has at least played tackle as a starter in the NFL before. Right? Yeah, sure. That'll do wonders for us when uh, 
you know, just like when you were saying earlier, Bean's going to get that itch come draft time, <laughs> and he's going to want to make a trade, and uh, it's going to be, and the other GM's going to be like, yeah, it's, it's not enough. And then he'll be like, what about this seventh round pick I got right here? Either way, Marshall, we're going to keep following you on Twitter because you are hilarious, but having said that, happy trails, sir. Cheers. Cheers. And now, without further ado, Chris, because I don't want to delay this any longer than I have to, let's recap week three for the Buffalo Bills. Bills 27, Vikings 6. We kick it off as we always do with the stats of the week. Two hours, four, two hours, four minutes and 59 seconds. That's the amount of time that the Buffalo Bills played in the 2018 season without having a lead. Thank God that that's over. <laughs> Josh Allen, 15 of 22 for 68% completion percentage, 196 yards, one touchdown and no picks, 10 rushes, 39 yards, two touchdowns, and one memeable leapfrog of linebacker Anthony Barr. Chris, what's your favorite Josh Allen leaping meme that you've seen so far this week? I mean, you can't really, you can't really make a meme out of it. I just want him jumping all over your hot takes from the draft that he sucked. <laughs> Do you think that's the biggest hurdle? Yeah, that's the biggest. Yeah, just clearing all of your hot takes. Josh Allen jumping over a video of me nude on a porch, on a, <laughs> on, on a balcony off my uh, hotel room in Jamaica with no pants on, just screaming that pants didn't matter because Josh Allen was our quarterback now. Yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I want. Oh, the hot takes. I think my favorite was tweeted out by Nate Geary. Um, it was a picture of Josh Allen jumping over the gap in Michael Strahan's teeth. That's probably <laughs> my favorite. Seven receptions, 115 yards, three first downs, and one touchdown. Those are the receiving statistics of all four non-wide receivers to catch passes in the game. The Bills front seven, six rushes, Six rushes for 14 yards allowed, good for a 2.3 yards per carry average, two fumble, forced fumbles and recoveries, and three sacks. Jerry Hughes, 15 quarterback pressures, one sack, and one forced fumble. How many times do we bitch at him watching the game? Because he always, he always goes for the, uh, the strip sack. He could have probably... I mean, I mean, he tweeted, okay, so th this is where we're going to start tonight's recaps on the defensive side of the ball because it's the story of the week. I, Jerry Hughes tweeted out earlier this week that he was upset and that it kept him up at night thinking about how many plays he left on the field. Rewatching that game, he was everywhere. If he hadn't been so strip sack hungry, he probably could have finished at least another two or three sacks. I mean, that's how dominant their performance was, especially his own. When I look at the defense and what they accomplished this week, I called out Sean McDermott. I called out Sean McDermott after week one. And I said that Leslie Frazier was the boob last week, talking about how, well, our defense is getting run over and it's that guy's fault. Last week, Sean McDermott wasn't happy with the way that that defense performed. I mean, you could tell. The fact, the fact that he took over play calling duties, essentially took the clipboard away from Leslie Frazier at halftime. That tells you everything you need to know about his feeling on it and the job Leslie Frazier was doing. In doing so, you're essentially sending the message to your staff on that side of the ball 
there's things here that need things here that need to be done that I'm not seeing. So I'm going to take this over. And you know, in the post game press conference, when he was asked about it, he said, "You know, there's things here that need evaluation. We're going to keep evaluating whether or not I got to keep doing this." And he stopped just short of saying that he he wasn't seeing the adjustments that he personally felt the team needed. Watching this week, Chris, the message was received. Did, did they? Did McDermott call? I don't even. I mean, that's how drunk I was. Who called defensive play? Was it McDermott or was Leslie it both? Fra- Leslie Frazier was given the game ball by Sean McDermott. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I would because ass- he did his job so well. I would assume that's what happened. Now, uh, for everyone listening to the show, it's Wednesday. I'm sure after a win like that, you're glued to the radios and you're you're reading everything, you're consuming everything you possibly can about the Buffalo Bills at this point. When when the chips are down, I mean, we see it in our podcast downloads. Our downloads, based on a win, a big win or a crushing loss, can swing anywhere from sixty to seventy to a hundred downloads simply because there's people out there who don't want to be faced with the Bills' ineptitude. But at the same time, they'll celebrate the Bills' victories. So I'm sure throughout everything you're trying to consume right now, that you've heard all the crazy statistics that have been thrown around about the success of our defensive unit. For me, I think some of the most impressive ones were the ones that I had to do my own research to find. How about the fact that our defense held the Vikings to just two first downs in the first half of the game? Two. Think about how that coincides with our running away of the game. I mean, all the the fumbles, the punts, they only got two first downs. Or that the Vikings must have been watching film when they came up with their offensive attack. Because even when they were behind in the game, all but five of their 55 pass attempts came less than eight yards from the line of scrimmage. Except unlike the previous weeks, where teams who operated with that method just ate us alive, only one receiver finished the game with more than four catches or more than seven and a half yards per per catch. How much of this was was because Minnesota didn't even have Dalvin Cook? That was a huge loss for them. So when their running game don't work and they get behind as as quickly as they did, then they just end up throwing the ball. They only they only tried to run the. They, they didn't even get ten attempts, Chris. I, I I honestly think that 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 has to be a product of uh, Dalvin Cook being out with the injury. Well, no, I think that's the product of you falling behind by seventeen points in the first quarter. You can't run the ball now. You you can't lean on a rushing attack when. You don't have the lead, and not only do you not have the lead, you're not even close. You can't because you're, the clock is too valuable, valuable to you at that point. So it was interesting seeing that, Chris, they finally started making the adjustments that I, I was screaming at you about last Sunday as we, as we were leaving the game. Yeah, I don't remember that because you were only in the stadium for Two Bills possessions. And you got stuck in the truck with me for long enough. You, you were, I'm sure you heard me MF everything under the sun. Last week that we, first and foremost, one of the best adjustments of the entire week. We mentioned the fact in passing that the Vikings were going to be missing their starting center, Pat Elfine, and that they might be susceptible to a pass rush in the middle of the field. I mean, now if a guy like me sitting here with a beer in my hand and a computer, and that those are my only resources, if I can see that and tell you that, I feel like the first two weeks, I'm seeing things that I could, I know about the way this game is going to unfold if you do certain things or make certain play calls. And yet, you're talking about guys who make millions coaching this sport who seem to just miss it. 
So it was good to see this week they kind of turned that corner and started doing some things differently. And the first one was having Lorenzo Alexander. He was probably one of the most drastic changes in responsibility from week, week two to week three. In week two, he was victimized in coverage. I mean, he played 75% of the snaps in that game, but really didn't tackle anyone because they just kept throwing behind him or in front of him, but outside of where he can, where he can reach because he doesn't have top end speed. This week, they started putting him more as a pass rusher, using him in the middle of the offensive formation. I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about how Star Latule and uh, Phillips and Kyle Williams all had good days. But I think it's worth noting that Williams, he's the only one of the tackles who played more than 50% of the snaps. Latule and uh, Harrison Phillips, they only had 35% apiece of the rotation. Instead, what you saw out of our front four was a rotation of multiple defensive ends and the linebackers. They sent a lot of five-man rush using Lorenzo Alexander. They also, sometimes when they did go four-man, used one D-tackle and multiple defensive ends because they realized, hey, this is an offensive line that with their backups can't handle speed. And so because of the speed and the pass rush that we're putting on them, they're going to suck their protection into the middle. And that's what set Jerry Hughes up for his monster day. I mean, Riley Reef, their left tackle, got his ass handed to him all day. He had no answer for Jerry Hughes' speed whatsoever. Did you do a first-round pick at Detroit? I believe so. I think they got him in free agency. But you could see it time and time again. Hughes almost was unimpeded. He just turned the corner. And Reef couldn't keep up with him. So... That's good play call. That's that's making sound adjustments against a specific opponent, but not only that, but you're addressing a weakness of your team, which is pass rush coming from the defensive tackle position. Yep. And you look at those low snap numbers by the defensive tackle. That's because another wrinkle that we saw was that the linebackers like Lorenzo and Edmonds and your reserve defensive ends, our Orchard, Yarbrough, sometimes they completely replace the defensive tackles. And one thing I like to see is when you watch the defensive line, they, they didn't, a lot of times it was easy to pick on Edmonds in coverage. That was another thing that I saw from this week to last week. This week, what you saw was Edmonds being allowed to creep up towards the line of scrimmage, and what they would do is they'd play. You know, you used to see this a lot from the Ravens, where they would all crowd the line of scrimmage, play after play after play. And it was a guessing game for the quarterback as far as who was going to drop back into coverage. Well, when you do that with a young but super athletic linebacker like Tremaine Edmonds, you essentially hide him from a quarterback being able to just say, okay, there he is, that guy's the Mike. He's the middle linebacker, and he's playing, he's shading, he's cheating over to this side of the center. So we're gonna we're gonna call an audible and we're gonna send a pass to a running back or a tight end just outside of his range and let that guy get yards after the catch. Now you have to play a shell game. Who is who's dropping back in coverage? Hopefully, it's not that guy. And I call, you know, I try to throw the ball over the middle because he's an athlete, and I don't want to try to put it near him. I thought that they did a fantastic job sheltering Edmonds from being picked on like that, and it showed up on tape because when you watch him play, he wasn't the same liability that we saw the first two weeks in coverage. I mean, all the way around, Frazier deserved that game ball, really did. And at the same time, I mean, this what they did up front. As far as pass rush, and the defensive line really, really turned things around. But then again, 
another one of the seismic changes that you saw that really, I think, decided the game. I mean, Chris, we were standing there in Mike's driveway, and everybody kept asking, what's what's changed? What team is this? Everyone had their own stupid – you've heard the cliches. Oh, what team is this? Is this the same Bills that put on – that was the question I heard from everybody. Why aren't we getting demolished? I mean, it wasn't for lack of the Vikings trying. They tried to replicate the style of attack that our previous two opponents used to just absolutely hammer our linebackers and cornerbacks for yards after the catch. You just throw in front of them and let them run headfirst into them because they're not a sound tackling unit. The Bills proved this week that they're willing to adapt. By Okay, we know that our safeties are a strength of this team. We've got two guys who are Pro Bowl caliber safeties. We've got a third reserve who's a veteran. Okay, with the cornerback problems we're having, he he makes sense to play in more of a nick like a big nickel role. You've talked about that before. I have, but what you saw to them on Sunday was their willingness to say, "Okay, we're sick and tired of teams trying to scheme away from our best players. Go ahead and do it again, and we're going to bring our best players to your doorstep." Time and time and time again, what you saw was the safeties of the Buffalo Bills being deployed down in the box. Okay, you can't run away from us now. We're gonna we're gonna bring our Micah Hyde and our Jordan Poyer and our Raphael Bush. We're gonna bring these guys down into the box and let them come harass you. We're gonna send them after you. And you look at the statistics, and it backs that up. Our three safeties, Bush, Hyde, and Poyer, combined for 15 tackles against the pass. Three tackles against the run and multiple pass breakups, the majority of which came within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. That's it. Doesn't that also include, you got to throw Jerry Hughes in there, because when you're creating pressure, you're forcing the quarterback to make a shitty decision. The defensive line was doing their job, but we essentially said, okay, we're sick and tired of teams dinking and dunking all over us. Because they know that, hey, Edmonds is suspect in coverage right now. Just because he's a young guy who doesn't recognize play design. Yeah, he can't even legally buy Moosehead. And you've got, you've got cornerbacks who can't tackle all that well. We're st- we started a guy named Ryan Lewis, who literally was just signed to, what, two weeks ago? He wasn't here at all for training camp. And I think it's, at one point he was on somebody's practice squad. You sure he didn't get signed uh, last week at halftime? <laughs> Ultimately... I love the fact that this staff found a way. They found a way to take all of the things that people have been beating them to death with and say, okay, go ahead and do it Do it again. We're ready for you this time. And the Vikings paid the price for it because our defense absolutely manhandled them. On the opposite side of the ball, things were pretty interesting, Chris. I mean, I'm willing to say that out of all the performances that we saw from players, Brian Dable might be my most improved personnel from the first two weeks. Considering last week you were at, I mean, not by name directly, but at least to me, you basically compared him to Rick Dennison. You wanted him gone. I wanted him, I wanted him run out of town because, again, for as much as I try to be pragmatic and I try to analyze things and I try to be analytical for the sake of the podcast, I'm still just... Just a raging lunatic fan sometimes. And after watching a first half like I saw out of us against the Chargers, you're right. I wanted his head on a pike. This week, complete 180, just like the defense. 
You heard it during training camp. Dable was referred to by a lot of the players as a genius. LaShawn McCoy in particular talked up just how his his innovative schemes were going to help this team and were going to help them grow and that it was it was a great offense, one that he hasn't seen here in Buffalo. I mean, what did you take away from those comments coming out of training camp? Well, when we hired Dable, you even talked about this. I think back when we hired him in, what, January or February, you went through the list of quarterbacks that he's had in the NFL, and whoever we were going to draft was going to be his best quarterback that he's ever had. And I think Allen's talents showed on Sunday with what him and Dable can come up with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, guys, the stat line I read earlier is important. If you follow NFL matchup on ESPN, the Bills lead the NFL in dropped passes. 9.4% of every throw gets dropped off their tar- intended target's hands. That's like Josh Allen's back at Wyoming. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, well, what is this, Wyoming again? Coming into the season, we all kind of made note of the fact that while our wide receiver core is big, there isn't a world beater amongst the entire group. And that Kelvin Benjamin, who is essentially a number two with upside on any other football team, is our number one. And there's really not a household name or a high upside talent anywhere else in this roster to be had. So with that being said, it's good to see that Dable finally started scheming ways to get the rest of the team involved in the passing attack. Kroom. Kroom and Ivory alone accounted for 15. Kroom, Ivory, and running backs. And maybe some, and I think a couple of Charles Clay, a couple other tight ends, accounted for 59% of all passing yardage. That's non-wide receiver yardage that's being produced. And he was creative with how he went about it. I mean, the play I'm about to break down for you, the Kroom touchdown, I think that that put that shines a light on this idea. The play starts, offense is lined up, a two-back set out of the shotgun. They have three wide receivers, one out to the left, two out to the right, but one of them's Kroom. It's Kroom and a wide receiver. Kroom is lined up on the inside position. The wide receiver is lined up on the right side, near the right sideline. Off the snap, Allen fakes the handoff. Chris Ivory, while Murphy curls behind the quarterback in the backfield headed towards the right sideline. Allen pulls the ball out and stares down Murphy, which causes the safety, because they're play, you know, the defense is playing a two-safety set, but it's single high and a safety down, in the, down uh, pretty much where the linebackers are standing. He stares down Murphy, which forces the safety to stay near the line of scrimmage. The wide receiver on the outside of the formation runs a post route that just takes him up up, and into the middle of the field. What that does is it takes the cornerback out of the equation but freezes that safety, that single high guy, who now has to try to account for this wide receiver. Kroom shades to the right, kind of a diagonal route to the right back towards the sideline in the space that was just vacated by that cornerback. It's called a wheel route, you dumbass. Allen, who has just looked off the safety and gotten him to bite on Murphy, now throws the ball to a Kroom who is too wide of the linebackers for any of them to get to him to make a play. And yet there's no safety help over the top. They've essentially solved the defense in one play, and he just sprints 20 yards to the end zone. That, 
I, I mean, Chris, I had a hard on after that play. I just like that play for the fact that Allen set his feet to throw a screen and then adjusted his feet and set his feet to throw to Kroom accurately. Key word right there. Accurately, which you didn't think he could do. That play got me so fired up that I had to apologize to Mike for rifling a beer across his backyard. Just threw it. Just tried to pull it. Tried to pull an Uncle Rico and throw this ball over those mountains. I threw that beer about two thirds of the way across my chair. <laughs> oh, that's the type of creativity that I've been waiting for for years out of a Bills offensive coordinator. I mean, yes, he did get conservative in the second half. I mean, but that was just a team that's happy to be in this point and doesn't want to make any mistakes. So they're just, look, we're going to grind this half of football out. Fuck these guys. It's 27 nothing. We'll see you in hell. You're not, we're not going to turn it over. We're not going to make mistakes or get sloppy. We're going to make you earn every one of those 27 points and keep this clock running. So I get that. I just, I guess I walk away from this game impressed with Dable's ability to not overwhelm our young quarterback with intricacies but still putting him in a position by scheme alone just to make explosive plays. I can't, I mean, I'm really excited to see if this is kind of the launch pad that they needed. If this wasn't the game where kind of, Dable came into it knowing, hey, I have to bring my A game. I mean, I want to see where they can grow together from this, Chris. I mean, remember back to Greg Roman, how people talked about how big Greg Roman's playbook was. And about how, oh, well, Greg Roman has all of these plays. It was like 40, a 40 or 50 play playbook on his call sheet. And he'd try to install these huge, intricate, you know, game, okay, this is going to be our walk during the walkthrough. He'd try to put together this massive thing that Tyrod Taylor was not equipped to absorb. And honestly, I think it did more harm than good in terms of our offense, which is why you saw him get fired after week two. Not only that, but I think Rex Ryan needed somebody to make a scapegoat. With that, I look at a guy like Dable and I say, okay, you know you're working with a rookie. So you say, hey, kid, let me design something that's complicated, but I'm going to make it easy for you. I'm going to scheme all of these things around what you do well. Like you touched on, Chris, setting your feet quickly. I mean, that was one of the biggest things about Josh Allen that made him intriguing coming out in the draft was that for a big mobile quarterback, he was able to set, he could move his throwing platform with the most ease out of any of the quarterbacks. He could adjust, set his feet quickly and get the ball out, regardless of where, whether he was on the run, whether he was rolling out, where he was on the field. We saw that on Sunday. And I'm really, I'm just impressed, Chris. The fact that, the fact that we beat Minnesota 27 to 6, we beat Mike Zimmer, who I would think is a Top five defensive coach in the NFL, and Allen beat him. Makes me wonder if did we just get our franchise quarterback? Oh my god! Don't tell me you're doing this, Chris. Are you on that wagon? It would be different if we we're playing, you know, somebody that had a poor defense. But you uh. know, Minnesota defense is all like Zimmer's got his guys ready. I mean, their defense is what is why they were so good last year. He's a defensive genius. All right. Okay, 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 okay. Let's have... I knew this was going to happen, and I'm prepared for it, Chris. The Josh Allen discussion. The good, the not-so-good, and the silver linings. First of all, everybody say it with me. Take a deep breath. 
Who's from? Pay him a hundred million. <laughs> Josh Allen was good on Sunday. I don't want any of you to think that uh, to take this the wrong way or think that I'm just trying to be a downer about him because I didn't like him before the draft. I mean, I've seen enough of that on Twitter. What, Jeff Schwartz, former player turned analyst, he caught so much shit on Monday from Bills fans because of all of his hot takes about Josh Allen and how he still refused to admit that Allen did a good job. I'm not saying that. I'm not. There's a few things I was genuinely impressed by. First of all, Chris, his poise. He took whatever the defense was willing to give him. Think about that for a second. You're a rookie quarterback playing a defense that's known for putting pressure on a quarterback, that's known for disguising their coverages, making you turn the ball over. And at the same time, he didn't panic. He took, whether it was with his feet, I mean, think about it, the rushing touchdown. He says, okay, you guys are taking this away. I'm just going to, you've given me a lane to run and I'm going to take it. On the play where, mind you, they wouldn't be third and 17 if he didn't take a sack. They wouldn't have been that far back if it wasn't for him. But then he he makes that electric play to jump the linebacker. And he says, look, if you're going to give me the middle of the field, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it because that's what I want to do. I'm not going to stand back here and try to find a 90-yard pass on third and long. I'm going to take what you're willing to give me and see what I can make happen. I was impressed by that. I was also impressed by the fact that he didn't let the drops by his wide receivers discourage him. I mean, Chris, how he kept throwing to Kelvin Benjamin. Do you know how many games, Chris, we've watched over the last 10 years where a quarterback has a couple big drops by a wide receiver and he just stops looking at him? Yeah, it happens all the time. But we don't have receivers, so, so to you got to throw it back so to, to him. So to know that he's like, okay, you're the guy. I'm going to keep feeding you the ball because you're the guy who's supposed to get it. The fact that he wasn't discouraged by that impresses me. Obviously, his athleticism. I mean, Chris, did you know he could run like that? That a guy who's six foot six could jump over a fucking six foot four linebacker at Anthony Barr. I'm yeah. sorry. Usually, if you see a defender getting leapfrogged, it's a safety or a cornerback, and it's usually a guy who already has his head down committing to a tackle. Not a six foot something linebacker being jumped. By a six foot five, two hundred and fifty pound man, you shouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> I mean, you're at this athleticism outside of the pocket. I mean, that's something that Travis Wingfield spoke to when we had him on pre-draft process talking about Allen. Look at that the the throw to Ivory for fifty five yards, the scramble outside of the pocket, and Ivory to, to get open. He was open for miles, but a- Allen's running and hit him in stride. 55 yards inside the red zone. And I was impressed by just his ability to absorb contact without injury. Now, maybe that's by design. I mean, he's six foot five, 255 pounds. I don't like that you brought that up. Now I think he's going to tear his ACL. Listen, this year. Hey, listen, we're going to touch on that. Chris, I once took a hit, a tackle from a division, oh, you want to call it what, a backup linebacker from Mississippi State University, took a shot. I mean, essentially, it, it all revolves around a drunken party night where I thought, you know, you're at a party, you're visiting one of your buddies who goes to a D1 school, and you're at a party, and you find that this kid, oh, he's a backup, backup special teams linebacker. 
And you start talking about football and about how you think you could take a hit. Next thing you know, you're out, you're out in somebody's front yard with a football. Listen to somebody talk about, hey, D-Ray, this Yankee thinks he could take a hit. I tried to pull what was called a spin move. That's what they call it in the biz. But when you're fat and unathletic, what ends up happening is that you don't spin so much as you just stop all forward momentum. And you turn just enough that someone way more athletic than you pulverizes your kidneys into dust. It took me a good 45 minutes to an hour to be able to get up and walk around after that. I mean, I could sit upright, but I sure as hell couldn't get my legs under me to walk around confidently around a house party. To watch Josh Allen just absorbing contact out there again and again and again, and he just keeps getting up. He pops right up and just jogs back to the huddle. I mean, God bless him. That, to me, is impressive. Now, having said that, Chris, I have some concerns, and that right there is marquee. You just touched on it. The kid needs to learn how to not play hero ball. It's, again, I get it. This You're so used to doing it. And in fact, both of the things that I'm mad about are things that I understand why he does them. You were a pro- When you look at what Josh Allen was, he's a quarterback who went to a subpar D1 university. They recruited like shit. They didn't get him any help on the offensive line or in the receiver core or at the running back position. So he was a one-man show on offense. And he had to carry the load for everybody. This is the NFL now. Everybody who's here is a professional. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. Everybody that you're going to play with is one of the best people you ever played against or ever saw play in college. So with that said, watching him run around the field like that, the old, I kept having every time. When he got horse collared on that to play with Anthony Barr, he's running to the sideline, he gets horse collared, and his body kind of bends underneath him. I'm having flashbacks to E.J. Manuel in that Thursday night football game against the Browns, Chris. All it takes, I'm picturing Carson Wentz on a quarterback scramble for a touchdown where he blows out his knee because of contact. Yeah, you know, I can see, I, can, I mean, I, I agree with your, your points here trying to play too much hero ball. I mean, just like, if, look, if you're going to get sacked and you see it coming, just go down. Just sit out like Brady, you know how he sits when he pees. Just go down, take the two-handed touch sack, live for another down, well, and don't risk getting an injury no, over And that's this. what's terrifying, is that you watch him operate from the pocket, and he's a quarterback who, he's tall, he can see the whole field. Unlike guys like Tyrod, or Baker Mayfield, or you know, some of these guys who take a lot of sacks and have taken a lot of hits over the years. I guess Baker's a bad example, but Tyrod Taylor. You know, some of the shorter quarterbacks in the NFL who had a hard time seeing the rush coming because they can't scan the field. He doesn't have that. So he has no excuse for when he sees the rush coming but still is trying so hard to make a play that he doesn't throw the ball away and instead just takes a sack. That is not that is going to set your offense back on more drives than not. It's not a, I mean, it was something I hated about Tyrod. Allen's got to clean that up. And another thing, you're talking about throwing the ball. Trying to be accurate on deep throws instead of just trusting the guys around him. You saw on that near pick that Josh Allen threw. It was a 53, the ball went about 53 yards. About how long the pass was. And luckily the wide receiver was able to adjust backwards in the air to come back and break up the interception. Because it was a poorly, poorly thrown ball short of the target. But that's my point, Chris. 
He has a cannon for an arm. He has the ability to throw 60 yards. Why is he throwing 53 short of his receiver in stride? I know why. The answer is he's a quarterback who is trying too hard to be the guy. He's trying to throw the perfect deep ball, and he wants to do it accurately. Guess what? At the NFL level, these wide receivers wouldn't be here if they didn't know how to track a ball in the air. You just throw it and let your receiver go get it. He needs to learn that. He has to understand that at this level, you throw the ball as far as you can throw it. And let that receiver go out there and try to get underneath it. Because worst case scenario, if you do that, it's an incomplete pass and you overthrew the entire field. Worst case scenario is what we almost saw. That you threw it up there, but you underthrew your target and that's an interception. And now because the offense is so spread out, that interception return, that guy is coming in hot and he's making up yards quickly. You can't have that. Absolutely can't have that. So with that, Pros and cons. Silver linings I take away on Josh Allen from this game, I think the big upside, and one of the things that Jeff Schwartz got torn apart for as far as criticizing Josh Allen by saying that he wasn't impressed with his day. A lot of the throws, I mean, you're talking about a guy who only had 196 yards, but he did have his highest professional completion percentage at 68%. He threw a lot of the passes that he couldn't throw in college. Yeah, this is what Travis and I were trying to tell you back in April. When he gets to the NFL, he's going to have better receivers. Thus, his completion percentage is going to go through the roof, well, which I don't care you about just the, saw. What I don't care about is the percentage. What I care about is the guy I saw in the preseason who literally in the Browns game threw a wheel route pass directly into Marcus Murphy's knees. He had all the time in the world, had his feet set, and threw it into a guy's legs. Fast forward to, um, to Sunday, he was hitting those passes. He was putting the right amount of touch on him. And then at the same time, he threw that quick slant. Something I didn't, I mean, we watched Sam Darnold do it on Thursday night. We watched Baker Mayfield do it. We watched Josh Rosen try to do it. You know, that was supposed to be their bread and butter. Their short area accuracy, the touch that they could put on the ball. And that was something that Allen has struggled with for a while. He had those passes. He was on them. And then, looking off the safety. Having the wherewithal to look off a safety and then throw Kroom a touchdown because he knew, hey, this is this is what's going to make or break this play. I'm either going to have a wide-open safety valve who might get three yards, but if I do this right, it could be a touchdown. Those are things I didn't see coming. Also, he's proven to me that he can handle some shots, Chris. I mean, think about it. He got pounded in that game. Oh, yeah, you would think because we don't have an offensive line. And, uh, Chris, just his ability for high, just explosive plays. That's it. The upshot to him. When he's at his worst, you're seeing a big-arm quarterback who's inaccurate. When he's at his best, he's a big-arm quarterback who puts, who can look off defenders, who can put balls where they need to be for, for yards after the catch. Something that I feel like this team has been allergic to for the last three years. I mean, yards after the catch wasn't even a concept during the Kyle Orton era or the Ty- or the Tyrod Taylor era. And, and Chris, he's given me the first thing this season that I was excited enough to shock on a bureau. That being said, he is our hero of the week. Here's the deal. I'm the best there is, plain and simple. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I piss excellence. I get the love. I understand it. And I'm feeling it. 
I'm understanding why the people who loved him pre-draft love him, and I see it. I still see some of the things he needs to improve on, but I'm not going to stand here and be the Grinch just to save my own take from this preseason. I was wrong, okay? I'm going to be wrong about a lot more things before this is all said and done, Bills fans, so you better get used to it. Yeah, dude, I'm just like excited with, with his performance. I think by the end of the season, he might be able to throw a, a string of games together where I don't remember the last time a Bills quarterback has done this, but I'm looking for him by the end of the season to throw a couple of 300-yard games. We've had one of those in the last three years. <laughs> it required overtime. <laughs> and that brings me to our zero of the week. Shouldn't be a shock to people. Wide receiver Kelvin Benjamin. Hey, if you want me to take a dump in a box and mark it guaranteed, I will. <laughs> oh, I guarantee you. Kelvin Benjamin's performance was a dump in a box. You're talking about a season where Kelvin Benjamin is supposed to be playing for a contract. And yet instead, he's just coming out here laying goose eggs. Chris. Two drops, two egregious drops in that first quarter. One of them could have been a touchdown. Good, yeah, same thing last week against the Chargers. He dropped one in the end zone. And then you hear reports that he had some kind of an argument on the sideline with other players and coaches. I, I don't understand what you're pissed about. You have no one to blame for the fact that you are struggling except for you. That's it. You have a job. You're like Hot Hands Heenan out there in the Little Giants before the final game where he's out there just looking at his hands going, man, what are you doing to me? I put gloves on you when you're cold. I clip your nails. Why are you failing me? He is hot. He is Kelvin Hot Hands Benjamin. If he doesn't get his shit together, I, I, I just don't see a place for him on this roster next season. I, I just don't. Considering the amount of money that some some team out there is going to pay him. You know it and I know it, Chris. If it, I, I don't know what, what more I can say. I mean, it's, it's, it's impressive that Dayball was able to produce what he did with non-wide receiver targets. And I'll give Robert Foster some grief, but I'll give him a pass because he was an undrafted free agent. He wasn't supposed to be great. They liked him because he was a good run blocker. He's a big dude, and he's fast enough to get separation down the field on long balls. He's the fastest option we have. So, Kelvin Benjamin is supposed to be the legit, legit number one. I just bit my tongue. I'm so fired up about that. God, that hurts. Yeah, dude. If he's gonna be a free, Ugh. if he's gonna be a free agent at the end of the year, I would rather take that money that we would spend on Benjamin. And if there's a decent left or right tackle or somewhere to help along the line, that's why I'd rather spend our money. To protect Josh Allen. I don't know. And then just, draft a number one. The whole thing is just, it's incredible to me that he's doing this poorly. Ugh. So, do you feel any better, Chris, about where we are today versus where we were last week? Yeah, we're going to the fucking Super Bowl. <laughs> See you there. <laughs> Chris, why don't, you, why don't you grab a couple more beers out of the fridge and throw them in this bucket? We're about to head into this week's AFC East Roundup. Because, guys, I mean, you saw it. We smoked Minnesota on the road. You, <laughs> Green Bay got dominated by the Washington Redskins. What else happened this week, Chris? I mean, I mean, oh, I got it. I got it. Hold on. Beer's in the bucket. I got it. I didn't get to watch much much of the Thursday night game, Jets and Browns, because I was at Mr. Good Bar. The Browns have won a game, folks. 
the world has officially gone mad. Chris, if a month ago, I had tried to bet you an entire paycheck that the Patriots would be tied with the Bills in record and that the Dolphins would have sole possession of first in the AFC East. I can't. Tell, I cannot believe that. Tell me you wouldn't have run to get your checkbook. That, God. <laughs> I can't believe this is happening. This but, is real life, people. This is where we live. But Belichick usually sucks in September. Well, we're going to run it all back. Now, you mentioned Thursday night football. That's where we start. Yeah, when I was at Mr. Goodbar. With New York, the Browns 21 and the Jets 17. i got to tell you, folks, watching this game, I was genuinely conflicted. On one hand, I mean, how do you not root for the Browns to continue to fail? How? It's so easy. And they ask for it. They practically ask for it. By not firing Hugh Jackson last season, you're asking to be the laughingstock of the NFL. And at the same time, it's incredibly difficult for me to root for the Jets to win anything. The last time I rooted for the Jets, it was only because they were playing the Patriots in Foxborough in the playoffs, and I'm physically incapable of rooting for New England. I mean, I, I dry heave when I think about it. So you look at that game. There were so many storylines for Bills fans, aside from, you know, obviously, the AFC's correlation. And the results were pretty fucking epic, Chris. Even if the game wasn't all that exciting. You had Tyrod Taylor and Sam Darnold squaring off against each other. And they got together and combined for one first down on their first five possessions. And Tyrod had to run in order to get it. It was like in the second quarter. I have it here on my phone. I took a, I took a picture of the, the screen cap, like a screen cap of what was on my TV. It was about midway through the second quarter. The two quarterbacks had combined for less than 15 yards passing and just three completions, Chris. What a game! <laughs> I'm glad I didn't get to watch really any of it. I saw some of it. You, if you watched the highlights on ESPN, you saw everything that mattered. I mean, you take a look at the Jets. Their offense was essentially paced by the rushing attack. And they took an early lead based on running the ball. Had the weekend's best touchdown celebration. Best one of the season. In fact, I think it might be the season, Chris. I'm putting, I'm going to stake my reputation on the fact that Isaiah Crowell had the best touchdown celebration of the season. That was a great one because they didn't replay, when they, they went to show the replay, they didn't show the celebration. He, they, he runs into the end zone. Now he's a former Brown. He runs into the end zone with the ball. He pretends that he's getting on a newspaper and squatting. And then he takes the ball, wipes his ass with it, and throws it into just an angry sea of Browns fans. That is phenomenal touchdown celebrating, sir. Yeah, you yeah. deserve a star for that. That's something that you would do. <laughs> it was fantastic, and I loved how pissed the Browns fans were. The big story here, though, is that when things mattered and the offense needed a play, Sam Darnold just wasn't up to it. And neither was his offensive line. The kid finished the night 15 of 31 with a 48% completion percentage, 169 yards and two picks. The entire game he was under fire. He got sacked twice and nothing he was trying to do on offense was working. It makes me laugh because after week one, when they just absolutely demolished the Lions, I saw people comparing him to Joe Namath. Oh, he's the 
Broadway Joe 2.0. This team is a shoe in for the playoffs. What the actual fuck? What? They won't be a shoe in into the playoffs until uh, they get some offensive weapons for him. Ever since week one, if you cut that out of the stat book, Darnold has completed just 55% of his passes for an average of 251 yards a game. Those numbers don't look bad. But throw in the fact that he's got one touchdown over that span, took four interceptions, he's been sacked five times, and he's leading the NFL in accepting quarterback pressures. Those are the numbers that worry me if I'm a Jets fan, especially knowing that I have to take my struggling offensive line to Jacksonville to face that meat grinder of a front seven that they have. I mean, Chris, games like this are why I love having the Sunday ticket. I told you before we started recording why you're going to want to watch that game. Oh, because football criminal himself, Jeff Fisher, for some unexplainable reason, is allowed to help call the game? That's good stuff. It's not good stuff. For fuck's sake, can someone please fit this guy for concrete shoes? What have we as football fans done? What have we done to deserve this? This mustachioed idiot just keeps running around the NFL. He won't leave. He won't leave. He's like a cockroach. You drop the A-bomb on him and he won't die. I don't understand why he's still associated with football. <sighs> you good there, Holmes? <laughs> Fuck Jeff You got, off, got out your Jeff Fisher stuff? I can't wait to watch that game. Let's I'd like to that. hold him down and shave one half of his mustache off. And just make him walk around like that. Asshole. Ugh. Something else no one could have predicted. Whatever the hell is going on down in Miami? This weekend, the, the Dolphins beat the Raiders 28 to 20. I mean, somehow they're outpacing the Patriots for offensive statistics. Nobody could have seen that coming. Tannehill, for all of the things that I have against him, which we're going to talk about here in a second, was solid. 17 to 23, 280, 289, and three touchdowns. I mean, I'll, I'll give him this. A wide receiver did have to throw the game winning touchdown pass. But what the, who cares? They're winning football games. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt things that they played the worst pass rush in the NFL. I mean, they didn't, the, the Raiders didn't need Khalil Mack or anything. And you clearly couldn't spell his first name correctly. Who gives a shit? <laughs> the fact is, the Raiders, the Raiders. How do you even do that? Trade away your best, your best player like that. So is anyone surprised that they only have three sacks? Three. Three. Jerry Hughes could have hit eight if he hadn't been trying to constantly strip the football. I don't know if my numbers are correct, but I I, I think Oakland has like 15 pressures as a team, and Khalil <laughs> Mack has like a total of 14 by himself. That's hilarious. I mean, I don't, guys, I don't know what to think about the 2018 Dolphins. Last season they were four and two, and then bombed out to end the season on this gigantic losing streak. Because they didn't have Tannehill. Chris, the Bills almost did it too. Think about that. We were five and two, and then we hit the skids. It proves that it's hard to string together wins for half a season when you don't have an elite quarterback. Which leads me to what I'm about to read for you. Now, our friend Keith Beebe, Chris, where does Keith write for? I have no idea. What's his publication? I'll be sure to tag it in the... <laughs> Keith Beebe does a Dolphins podcast. He reached out to us and said, hey, I'm looking for people who don't like Ryan Tannehill to give me their anti-Ryan Tannehill takes. 
I want to hear it because I'm compiling them for a reason that I'll show you in the future. I'll show you in the future why I'm asking this. So I hit him with the goods because that's how I do things. I started it off. Ryan Tannehill is Daniel Tosh's twin brother with a slightly better arm and a better chance at making me laugh. Since 2012, Tannehill has never had a net yards per attempt ranking higher than 17th in the NFL. And he actually finished behind Kyle Orton when he was here in Buffalo for net yards per pass attempt. How does that happen? That was the most conservative offense the universe has ever seen. Since 2012, I mean, you look at that. During that time span, he's finished top 10 for yards lost via sack every single year of his career. And twice, he's been number one. Number one! Also, he looks like a guy who would say, well, gee, mister, unironically. (laughs) How about this stat that I heard on uh, Cowherd? Ryan Tannehill's won uh, his last 10 of 11 starts. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't understand how they're doing it. If, well, if you listen to Locked on Dolphins with Travis Wingfield, because we know that he loves him. We know Travis loves him some Tannehill and has been telling everybody, including us when he's been on our show, that Tannehill is the man and Gase is the right coach for Tannehill. Well, but look at the teams they've beaten. Let's take that into account, too. You're talking about the Jets. You're talking about the New York Jets, the Oakland Raiders, and the Tennessee Titans. Those teams have a combined record right now of 3-1. and one. Okay? Or, excuse me, 3-6. and six. Jesus. Two of them are 28th and 30th in scoring, and two of them are 29th and 21st in yards per game. Now, I could sit here and be a homer and tell you that I think they're a paper tiger propped up by a weak, early slate of opponents. But it is possible that they've figured things out in their front seven on defense. I mean, it's worth noting that their offense has scored 25 points a game. That's pretty impressive for the NFL. Usually speaking, if you can score 21 a game, you're in the conversation to win every time. If you're scoring 25 points or more per game, it's going to be tough for opponents to beat you, as long as your defense can do anything that looks like NFL-caliber defense. Now, mind you, the Tennessee Titans just beat the Jacksonville Jaguars by scoring nine points. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that says about anybody that they've played so far. What I see is a bunch of shitbag teams that lost to the Dolphins. But if they have truly figured something out with their runaway record already in the division, this could be theirs. It's it's really going to be interesting to watch how things pan out for the Dolphins this weekend as they get to go up against the arch nemesis of everybody, everybody in this division, the New England Patriots, at a time when they appear the most vulnerable. And that brings us to New England. The Lions won 26-10. to Ha-ha! <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I didn't drink an extra three or four beers on Sunday night watching that just... Just abominable performance. I wish I could have watched it. I mean, and had been there uh, mentally to watch it. Because, <laughs> I mean, physically, I was just like laying all over my sofa, just drunk from our win against the Vikings. I got to tell you, it's the first time that I can remember in my adult life watching the Patriots in back-to-back weeks look like a shitbag team. 
I've seen them come out and lay a goose egg here and there. They've always rebounded the following week with just demolishing their opponent. And instead, they came out and shit their pants again on national television, which makes it that much tastier. They're going to handle. And it was fantastic. Matt Patricia got his first one as a head coach, which makes him just the third Bilicek disciple to beat him on the first try. I mean, some guy named El Gro and current Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels are the only other two to do it. And the Lions got their first 100-yard rushing game since Reggie Bush was wearing their jersey. Oh, yeah. Uh, carry on, Johnson. War Eagle. Fuck that guy. War Eagle. <laughs> War Eagle. Watching the game, even half in the bag. I shouldn't even say half. That's a lie. When you're 16. You were a hole in the bag. When, when you're 16 beers deep, you can't claim it's half in the bag. One thing Boy, you're halfway to a 30-pack. One thing kept standing out to me is the fact that they, the Patriots just looked like they were jogging. I mean, they have no speed or explosiveness. The wide receivers can't get any separation, and Gronk isn't running around through defenses the way that you're used to seeing him do. I mean, you take a look. Go ahead and Google Patriots covered sack from Sunday night's game. Tom had anywhere between six and seven seconds to throw the ball. He, gets, he steps up in the pocket, avoids pressure. He drifts right, avoids pressure. He drifts left, then tries going back to his right, and then back to his left before he's finally sacked. No one got open. No one even bothered coming back to the football. How does that happen? This is Tom Brady. This is Bill Belichick. Well, since I'm a vulture when it comes to the Patriots and any kind of misery that they might come across, I've spent hours over the last two days over at PatsPulpit.com, their SB Nation affiliate, just, just, I, I mean, just trying not to pitch a half stack, basking in the glory that is the writers and fans in New England, pissed off at the team. Now, how often does it happen? I've seen fans in the comments call for Brady to retire, that B- Bilicek should be fired, and one guy put out like a six-paragraph diatribe about how this whole thing is a massive conspiracy by Bill Belichick to force Brady to retire by purposely building a shitty roster. <laughs> how, Chris? I would think if Brady goes, Belichick goes. How amazing is it to watch their fans suffer and, and just taste a little bit of anguish? I mean, how like, nice is that? I mean, I like it. It usually happens in September. That's when Belichick has his worst month of the football season is in September because he's trying to work out the kinks and whatever he wants to do defensively, offensively. But well, and that's they're slow as shit. Well, and here's the thing, and I guess that's where where I'm where I'm, what I'm about to talk about holds some weight. One of the most interesting things I stumbled across is an article that I'm going to link in tonight's show description. I go check it out if you hate the Patriots. Go read this. Pat's pulpit mainstay, and I think he might even be their editor-in-chief, Rich Hill, discussing the Patriots' recent draft history and the injury history associated with it. It's a really interesting piece. And the fact that he talks about how nine of the Patriots' last 22 draft picks, just nine in the top four rounds, have been able to play a significant amount of time without suffering injuries, including some of the guys who have been nothing more than backup-level players. I mean, you're talking the Geno Grissoms of the world. Consider that the Pats are always drafting in the late rounds. 
their method has been to take risks on high ceiling players who are either coming off of injury or fell in the draft because of an injury history. Or have murdered someone. See Aaron Hernandez. When you do that, his premise is, then it's not shocking that you know you're you're essentially gambling. Hey, this guy fell, Dominic Easley. He fell because of uh, knee concerns. Sony Michelle fell because of knee concerns. All of these things are cut. Co- I mean, you look at this year's draft class for the Patriots, and all but two of them are on the injured reserve. They're already injured and out. They're not available for the team, which is incredible. But then when you take it in context of this article and you realize that this has been the methodology of the Patriots for forever, that's how they keep drafting cheap talent that produces. Because they're getting guys who shouldn't be there because they're injury, but they are because they're injury prone. But when you roll the dice too many times, eventually it has to come up snake eyes. This year, most of their class is either injured or not producing. And now you're, you're watching them. Chris, what kind of a talent level can you put on the field when year after year after year you're on you're constantly just waiting for the next injury to occur? None. There, uh, I believe last year was a Derrick Rivers, their defensive end Taurus that they ACL drafted Taurus ACL. Uh, this year they had uh, Isaiah Wynn from Georgia. Yes. He shredded. I think he shredded his Achilles. Yep. And it, Sony it's, Michelle it's, had a knee procedure, and he's clearly not 100 percent because he's not running. He doesn't have the explosion to his game. So then this week, after putting another two starters in Rex Burkhead and Juwan Bentley on the IR, the Patriots are now going to go home and play host to the Dolphins, who for some unexplainable reason have a decent track record of upsets against Tom Brady. I don't understand, Chris. What is it about the Dolphins that they can upset the Patriots like this? Uh, I would say, well, I think this game's in New England. Correct? Yeah. I think typically in September, if you're playing in in Miami – Miami has the advantage when it comes to weather because it could still be boiling lava hot in Miami in September. And I think that plays a role. I don't get it, but here's what I do know. If the Patriots lose, they're going to fall three and a half games behind the division lead for the first time in almost a decade. And in the eyes of their fan base? Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. What a time to be alive, Bills fans. What a time to be alive. Oh, moving on. Week four preview. Buffalo Bills versus Green Bay Packers. Tapping over at Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Time is 1 p.m. Eastern Standard. The weather, according to all reports, looks to be partly sunny. 57 degrees with an 8 to 10 mile per hour wind. Right now, the betting line. Bills are plus 10, according to oddshark.com. Chris, what about the coverage map? What are we looking at? We're looking at Ian Eagle and Dan Fouts on CBS. Uh, we're, for some odd reason, we're in the Fresno, California market for that game. And then some other small parts in Northern California. Montana, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. You're going to get the game locally. If you don't want to go to your local Bills Backers bar, and uh, you can always look at the coverage map, 506sports.com is where I go see who's calling the game and where it's being played locally. And I can't wait for this game. And then, of course, what I said earlier, Jets and Jaguars. Jets and Jaguars. Jeff Fisher. Guys, having get in my ear. (laughs) Oh, my God, Jeff Fisher. Chris, you're going to watch me in my new house break something because of Jeff Fisher. Mark my words. 
It's happening. The injury report. For Buffalo, things are looking up. Shaq Lawson, Phillip Gaines, and defensive end Trent Murphy are all questionable, but all practice this week in some capacity. Limited participants. Is this real life for Green Bay? This is real life, Chris. Wow. Let me take a deep breath. In fact, let me open a fresh beer. Because you still got a, you still got half. Yeah, well, I'm going to finish that by the time I'm done reading this injury report. Here we go. For Green Bay, we have linebacker Nick Perry, questionable with a concussion. We have safety Josh Jones, questionable with an ankle injury. We have cornerback Kevin King, questionable with a groin injury. We have right guard Justin McCray, questionable with a shoulder injury. Right tackle Brian Bulaga, questionable with a back injury. Tight end Jimmy Graham, probable with a knee injury. Cornerback Devon House, out on the IR with a biceps injury. Defensive tackle Mo Wilkerson, out with a, to the IR with an ankle injury. Both suffered last week. And Aaron Rodgers, probable with knee and hamstring injuries. I would think that if we're gotta punch if Green Bay's favored favored by ten, we definitely have to cover on that. <laughs> God, that's usually like how there's got to be at least ten ten players you just mentioned. It's, that's usually how we look. It's worth noting the most important of them, the starters. Your Brian Bulaga, your Kevin King, your Nick Perry. You know, these are all start. Justin McCray, your guard. Uh, all starters. None of them have practiced this week, and that's why we start our preview of this game with just the how injury ravaged these guys are, and the fact that it makes them look vulnerable on paper. I'm surprised you didn't even mention Mo Wilkerson in your list, or the fact that we have I no. Uh, we'll get in the rundown, but you just labeled like the one your top guys that will be out or should be out because they haven't practiced. Uh, Mo Wilkerson. Against yeah, against our offensive line. That's good. wait, it's Jeff. That's good stuff. Oh my that's god, good I'm stuff. Gonna, oh, I'm telling you, it's coming. The breakage, it's coming. When you look across the defense of the Packers entering the 2018 season, one of the things you're going to realize pretty quickly is that they're a team. When you came into the year, you looked at them and said, "Okay, you don't have a ton of stars on defense. What you have is some a lot of guys with upside." I mean, you, you think about it. They have linebacker Blake Martinez. Guy was in, you know, kind of fighting with uh, Preston Brown last year for tackles in the NFL. And then you see that you've got a Mo Wilkerson who was allowed to leave the New York Jets because he was he wasn't er, living up to his paycheck. But he's got high he's got high upside. They've got Clay Matthews, who's their lone standout game wrecking star. And then they've got a bunch of dudes. Who are just out there, some of a varying talent level. Chris, the type of guys who can take over a game and that an offensive coordinator has to base their game around. The Packers really didn't come into this season with any of those. Then you look at their offense and see that while Rodgers makes everybody look good, they're a team that has running backs, youth, athleticism. They've got that, but they have no proven production. I mean, even Ty Montgomery. Yeah, wide receiver moves to running back. Yeah, what running back wears number 88? Because he was a former wide receiver and he loves it. But he hasn't done anything. He hasn't proven anything to this point. And outside of that, they've got a talented group of wide receivers that's kind of the bread and butter of their offense. Their offensive line is a mixed bag of guys who, you know, their tackles by Bakhtiari and Brian Bulaga are, you know, those are veteran talents who you know are proven at what they do. 
But at the same time, on the inside of the line, they've got questionable depth in a lot of young guys. It's not difficult to see, based on that synopsis of their roster, why they're 1-1-1 one, one, one coming into the season. That's it. You don't have a ton of explosive upside. anymore. You, you don't. You lost it. Their big play threat, Jordy Nelson, a wide receiver, he's gone. Randall Cobb, Randall Cobb was talked about being traded this season because he just wasn't clicking with Aaron Rodgers. Devontae Adams isn't terrible, but he's not anybody I'm terrified of. There's no big, physical, imposing wide receivers on this team or anybody who's so fast I don't think we can cover. I mean, you look at Green Bay. Green Bay, like Buffalo, small NFL city. You're not really going to attract free agents to Green Bay. Well, and I guess my point here in saying this all, Chris, is that you can win games like that. You can roll out that kind of a team when you have an elite quarterback. But when a team with questionable overall talent and without a ton of depth starts losing starters, the way that the the way that the Green Bay Packers did last week in their game, they're just dropping like flies. I mean, Bills fans know what that feels like, where. You know, by the time week three or four rolls around, we've lost half of our starting offense or two-thirds of our linebacking core. We know what those years feel like, and that's what it feels like for the Packers when I'm watching this happen, especially what happened last week. On the defense, sizable blows. Ankle injury to Mo Wilkerson. He's their starting defensive end, and he's also part of their pass rush. He's the best run defender, and he's part of their pass rush rotation on and that just fucks everything up because now you have to put a bunch of underwhelming young kids in there. I think the I think the Packers were looking for Mo Wilkerson to have a decent year. The fact that they I think they I think it was Dom Capers, their old D coordinator, yep. they fired, and then they brought in Mike Patton, who yep. we know, and Mo Wilkerson knows from being in with the uh, with the Jets. I think, yep. I think they were looking for a, a, a huge production out of Mo Wilkerson this year, and now they're not going to get it. Well, and then you go on to Nick Perry which is probably the most interesting one because he might play. He's still in the concussion protocol. He hasn't practiced this week. He's the only linebacker on the on the Green Bay Packers roster. Now, mind you, they run a 3-4 defense. So your outside linebackers are your edge rushers. They are the ones who are supposed to accumulate the pressure. He's the only linebacker on the roster who has a sack this season. He was forced out of the game with that concussion, Chris, and he hasn't practiced since then. So now, their front seven that was already desperate for playmakers, that only has six sacks and is ranked 27th in the NFL in yards allowed per play, just lost two of its best players. Not ideal. And then, you go on to lose your number four cornerback, Devon House, and then their number one cornerback, Kevin King, has a groin injury. If he can, he hasn't practiced yet this week. If he is a go, he's not 100%. And then uh, what about um, over under uh, roughing the passer for Clay Matthews? <laughs> oh, my God. How do you get so snake bit? I think Clay Matthews is one of those throwback type players that just he's not going to conform. And the league, I don't want to say they're targeting him, but I feel like they may be putting him under a magnifying glass now. Because week after week, he's the guy getting these calls. I think they're looking at specifically something he's doing and saying, look, you can't play like this anymore. And now that you're on every referee crew's radar, they're going to be looking for that. That's going to be an interesting point in the game. And if you flip to the opposite side of the ball, Chris, 
The offense is just as bad. Brian Bulaga left last week's game with a back injury. His backup, Jason Spriggs, comes in, just got his ass handed to him in pass protection. Chris, he gave up three quarterback pressures in his first 11 plays. And then the team had to put a tight end on his side of the field to give him help. That seems like good news uh, if he's going up against uh, Jerry probably, Hughes. Probably Trent Murphy. I don't well, know why, but Jerry Hughes just seems to stay on that one side of the defense. I almost wonder if he only knows how to bend one way, and they just don't want to change it. But either way. You're and talking, I feel for Trent Murphy because he's always injured. <laughs> you're talking about a guy, Jason Spriggs is his backup, who just got clowned last week. Okay? And then, normally you'd be able to take your starting right guard, Justin McCray, and slide him over to right tackle for the Packers. But he had a shoulder injury and had to be taken out of the game. So even if McCray plays, even if Bulaga plays, they're not 100%. They're both ailing. And if they both miss the game, you're talking about a low upside reserve type player that's going to step in to hold up the entire right side of the line. In a recent report by Pete Doherty of the Green Bay Packer, excuse me, Green Bay Press Gazette, Rodgers himself had this to say about his own knee problem. Quote, I hope it's better in a month or two. I really do. It can be painful at times moving around, especially lateral movement, but I'm going to be out, I'm going to be out there if I'm up to it and try to get this thing back turned the right direction with a win next week. That sounds like he has like a. It sounds like his confidence is shot. Well, no, when you. This is the same guy who went out there after a, after a massive skid to start a season and told everyone to relax. R E L A X. Now he's out there telling the media, well, I'm hoping my knee's going to be good in a few months and I'm going to try to do what I can. That doesn't sound like a resounding endorsement. I think, I think Aaron Rodgers has a little bit of, uh, Ryan Tannehill in him. I think his knee injury is basically like a partial ACL tear, and he's just one or two moves Ooh. away from being a full-on ACL tear. That's my guess. I'm no, I'm no chemist, but <laughs> I think that's no, I, from no, this comment. You're that not you, a chemist. You're just a guy who puts sea salt and kelp in his hair. You fuck. Oh uh, my God. Luscious hair. Just reading these comments that you have written in a rundown. That. The, that's what my brain went to. It sounds like a Tannehill injury. He probably has like some kind of partial ACL tear, and he's one or two hits from from well, shredding his ACL. There's other knee ligaments there. MCL, PCL. Come on, I talked to Kyle. I'm more be, friends with him than you are. It can be just as painful. Ultimately, here's what here's what my takeaway from this. You're walk, this team is the walking wounded. This is a perfect opportunity for a defense that just found its teeth. Get it. Go get this shit done. This is a team that has a lot of marquee reputation and might not have the horses to back it up. You know, it's, it's, it's like my grandfather said to a kid in a parking lot one time. God bless his soul. Walt Gear was one of the, uh, Walt Gear was a crotchety old man. One of his favorite phrases was, this guy has an alligator mouth and a hummingbird ass. This team might have an alligator reputation and a hummingbird ass. Okay? With the injuries they're facing right now, I, I think they're vulnerable. So here's what I'm going to be watching for this week. Kind of like we did last week. We're going to break it down by what I'm going to be paying attention to. First off, 
Can our safeties and pass rush build off the strong performance from last week? The game plan we saw against the Vikings might be our best bet if we're going to corral the Packers' offense. But but it's going to be difficult to recreate. I mean, I'd say that the Packers have a more athletic backfield than a Delvin Cookless Vikings did. Is that fair, Chris? Yeah, it seems about right. Okay. And they've got a more natural pass-catching threat in Jimmy Graham at tight end. I mean, Kyle Rudolph's good. But Jimmy Graham has set the world on fire before as a receiver when he had an elite quarterback throwing to him. Considering the damage that tight ends have done to this team week over week, except last week, and even last week we allowed a touchdown to a tight end, that's going to be something that concerns me, and it has to be a legitimate concern to Leslie Frazier. has to. Well, I think, I mean, I know Aaron Rodgers has a, has a messed up knee, but, I mean, you look at how many times you know, Aaron Rodgers can just improvise and create outside of the pocket. His that's, off-schedule that's gonna playability be might be the... I mean, that's what's going to land him in the Hall of Fame, is his ability to just make something out of nothing and whip the ball around when it doesn't seem like there's a play to be made. What I'm going to be watching for is to see if against a Green Bay offensive line that's going to be operating at less than 100%, can you impose your will and maintain creativity in the pass rush. Even if they try to, you know, scheme up something that exploits this out-of-the-box approach in the secondary that we use to hold the Vikings in check. If we can do that, if our safeties can get involved, make plays, they're going to be able to keep us in a spot to compete by not letting this thing turn into a track. That's not what this team was built to be. The Buffalo Bills at this point... Even as good as Josh Allen is, he's not going to go out there and throw for 400 yards and five touchdowns. So if that's what this game turns into, we are going to lose. I'm just interested to see if our defense is going to be up to the task of keeping this game close. Decision be damned. Number two, Josh Allen's decision-making. Last week, John Josh Allen's running around out there playing cowboy football. I mean, he's fucking John Wayne. And luckily, it ended for him like True Grit instead of the Alamo. And there's movies or something? Yeah, Chris, you don't watch movies. John Wayne is the fucking man. And those were two of my favorite movies. <laughs> Damn. This week, I don't think he's going to surprise the Packers. <laughs> Everybody has seen his highlights. His athleticism put on display on a national stage. And in his meeting with the press just this afternoon... When he was asked about what he thought about teams potentially putting a quarterback spy on him, he said he looked forward to it because he said, hey, that's going to take a blitzer off, off the field or it's going to drag somebody out of coverage, which is going to make my job and our job as an offense easier. He's right, Chris. Uh, yeah, if, uh, if we happen to win this game and Josh Allen plays like he did against the Vikings, it's just going to, for me... Like what I said earlier, him beating Mike Zimmer, you beating Mike Pettin, who is a great defensive coordinator, it just makes me believe even more that we got our guy. You can keep doing that. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. It'll be different if we were playing like Oakland, who don't have no defense. 
then I'd be where you are. Who don't but, have no defense. I love how you call me white trash, and yet you, once you get more than four beers in you, somehow revert back to speaking like, you don't have no defense. That's right. I'm, I'm, well, I am finishing, oh, I am finishing my fourth. You fucking volume-haired idiot. God, I hate you. This week, I'm going to be watching to see the choices that he makes. For as good as it was last week, and as instrumental as that mobility and cannon arm is, I want to see him progress in terms of his pocket presence. I want to see his pass selection. I mean, this is the defense that can't get after passers. So they may decide, hey, instead of, instead of trying to get sacks, considering how low we are, and now we're missing one of our other pass rushers and we only have one, maybe instead of committing to blitzing and making his life easier if they can pick it up, we're going to put some exotic schemes in here to confuse the young quarterback. See if we can trick him into throwing into coverage. I want to see if he can hang in the pocket against that and make good decisions. That's what I want. And then the third point, how do Allen and McCoy integrate? I mean, Chris, last week we saw the best offensive performance that this team has had, which was obviously backed up by the defense. I mean, think about it. If we don't get two turnovers within the red zone or within the 40-yard line, we probably don't score that many points. Now you're talking a 17-6 to game if those two fumbles don't happen. So I, I just look at it and I say, okay, we're going to need a ground game. We're going to have to have that. You're going to have to be able to do something to, to keep these guys from scheming up, like I said, exotic formations in pass coverage against Josh Allen to try to get him to make rookie mistakes. That's LaShawn McCoy. But what's the split? What's the uh, Chris Wool, what do you think? Does LaShawn McCoy, how many carries does he get? I mean, the offense seemed to operate pretty well without a premier running back because nobody knew what to expect. Do you see him used as a decoy? Do we do we use McCoy as a play action candidate? Because one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of the play action passes that he's thrown over the first two weeks came without McCoy on the field. It's going to come down to how the game starts. Because, like, the first two games, our opponent started faster. We got down. You abandoned, you abandoned the running game. Just like uh, last week, Minnesota abandoned the running game after we got up 17 to nothing. If we get up early, or if we're, A, we're down early. If Rodgers throws all over us and we get down early, then we're, Jesus, you're just ripping ass. I hope... I hope that got picked up on the mics. So that seemed loud enough too. But if if we get down early, McCoy ain't gonna get more than like fifteen carries. And that brings me to a new segment we're gonna roll out this week and every week: the obscure stat of the week. I don't even know what that means, but I love it. In the 2018 season, quarterbacks passing inside the 30 yard line against the Packers are 16 of 20 with four touchdowns, no interceptions, and a 135.8 quarterback rating. That compliments of the AcmePackingCompany.com, the SB Nation affiliate of the Green Bay Packers. Considering the Bills' success in the red zone this past Sunday, that's some out-of-left-field thing that now that I see it, I'm absolutely going to be watching it closely. Figured I would share it with you. Guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, at Rock Report, 
rockpowerreport 716 at gmail.com. Shoot us an email if you have questions, things you want to hear read, questions that you want to hear read on the podcast. We used to try to do a mailbag section, but eh, nobody, nobody emailed us. Now that we've got 600 some odd people listening to our show a week, some of you must have questions. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just see us as two drunks from Buffalo who enjoy the, enjoy the hell out of watching this team. Hey, are we going to do a Seagram's bet? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to gamble? Well, I mean, the, the line's ten and a half Green Bay. I say we. Do, I say we cover. You think we're? Do you think we're going to lose and cover? No, but I'm willing to say we cover. I, I see. That's what I mean, guys. I tune think, into our video on Saturday. We're going to go live on Periscope. So we should be following us at Rockpile Report on Twitter so you get notified of it. We're going to be live on Periscope Saturday night. We'll announce what the Seagram's bet of the week is. And also be following at Charge Buffalo or go to chargebuffalo.com. Link's in the description. It's Del Reed from 26 Shirts, uh, Bill's Mafia. It's his campaign, Charge Buffalo. Their flag flies at every one of our tailgates, and the entire initiative goes to benefit the Buffalo City Mission. It's a great... It's a great charity support. And then Wise Guys Pizzeria. If you live in the South Buffalo area and you're not ordering Wise Guys, your taste in takeout is up there with Chris's taste in fashion. Which is I'm amazing. White belts, salmon colored chinos. These are red. Hair paste. I don't have paste. And spray with kale in it. You are uh, an asshole. Kelp. I'm Drew Gear, and this has been the Rock Pile Report.